Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas, the Confluence Investment Management Podcast. Our guest today, the firm's chief market strategist, Bill O'Grady. I'm Phil Adler, your moderator. Today, we're discussing the Confluence Investment Economic Forecast for the coming year, which is presented in detail in a written report titled 2020 Outlook Storm Watch. You can find this report on confluenceinvestment.com under the research and news heading at the top of the page. After clicking on research and news, scroll down to the current perspectives category and you'll find the report. Bill, you're one of the co-authors of this report. The title does catch my attention. You call it a storm watch, not a storm warning. So... Can we say that you're somewhat concerned about an economic downturn or a recession, but not overly concerned? That's a pretty good way of characterizing it. Uh, here in the Midwest, we, we have a designation if you uh, in the spring between tornado watches and tornado warnings. And watches mean you, you're paying attention. Warnings mean you're looking for cover. Uh, and that's why we specifically use the term watch as opposed to warning. Recessions have been becoming increasingly rare over the past five decades. Uh, We had two in the decade of the 70s, two in the 80s, one in the 90s, two in the aughts, and over the last 10 years, we have not had a recession. There are a number of reasons for this lack of economy-wide downturns. Uh, Persistently low inflation, an artifact of deregulation and globalization, plays an important role. Since policymakers tend to deploy austerity when inflation is rising, low inflation reduces the need for tighter policy and thus reduces the odds of a policy error. Another factor reducing inflation is demographics. Aging populations tend to consume less of most goods, thus reducing price pressures. At the same time, there is evidence of slower growth. And the yield curve, one of the best indicators of a downturn, inverted last summer. Although no indicator is perfect, the yield curve has a history of signaling the end of expansions. However, there are a wide, a rather wide variability in timing. In other words, from the time the yield curve inverts, it can take up to two years before a downturn occurs. There are other indicators we watch as well. Most of these have not signaled recession yet, and thus we title the report Storm Watch for that reason. Let's look at some of your key forecasts. One of them is the economy will grow at 1.5%. That seems meager. Uh, The Fed has lowered rates, seemingly to give the economy a boost. Why isn't it working? Uh, The Fed would probably like the answer to that, too. Uh, We know that investment has been sluggish. Over the course of this expansion, it's only contributed 0.7% to GDP. But the real problem has been government spending. It has actually been a negative contributor to GDP in this expansion. Outside of demobilizations, that is unheard of. So the Fed is struggling to overcome slow investment and tight fiscal spending and hasn't had much success. Investment may be weak due to a number of factors. Slowing demography plays a role. Technology has become a force multiplier, meaning that less investment is necessary to achieve the same goals. But an underappreciated factor is probably due to the volatility of policy. Government regulatory policy has been shifting abruptly with each administration, and that is probably playing a role in reducing investment as well. Government spending and GDP data only counts what the government buys, so transfer payments are not included in the government's part of GDP. 
When the government cuts a Social Security check, it shows up in GDP when a household spends it, and then it is considered consumption. Government spending appears large, but much of it is income support. Actual purchases have been unusually weak in this expansion. Keep in mind, when we refer to government, we're including state and local government spending too. Well, you say consumption, or I guess purchases, uh, is currently the primary driver of growth, with pay raises for much of the U.S. workforce practically non-existent. Are you concerned that consumption might falter? Yes. Wage growth has been modest, and recent reports suggest that the impact of rising minimum wages has probably ended. Thus, any decline in consumer confidence could become a problem. You're looking for a weaker dollar. Why? Well, there are three reasons. First, on the basis of relative inflation, the oldest of the currency valuation models, the dollar is persistently overvalued. Our calculation suggests, for example, the yen should be trading about 60 yen to the dollar. It's currently a bit over 100. Second, the dollar tends to run on a 15 to 17-year cycle, peak to peak, so we're right on time for to begin weakening. And third, tariffs are dollar bullish. If the president puts on a trade truce, the dollar should weaken. How might a weaker dollar impact consumer spending? Probably not a lot. A weaker dollar may raise import prices, but it will also offer modest support for wages, so mostly it's a wash. Do you think a weaker dollar is uh, currently a goal, a key goal of the, of the administration in Washington? It should be, but it, it's not yet. The administration has opposed currency manipulation, but hasn't moved to aggressively weaken the dollar. This is something we saw uh, similar in the early stages of the Reagan administration. Should we hold more international stocks, expecting the dollar will weaken? In general, yes. However, if a recession develops, that might negate the positive effect that international usually gets from dollar weakness. Looking at some of your other um, predictions uh, or expectations, you expect continued outperformance by growth stocks, but your recommendation is for a balanced equity position between value and growth. Why? Well, growth will tend to outperform until the recession actually occurs. Since the chances of recession are elevated, we move to a balanced position. All right, let's look at bonds. You, you seem cautious about the high-yield sector. Why? Well, there are two reasons. First, high-yield tends to suffer in downturns, so if a downturn develops, high-yield spreads uh, tend to widen. Uh, secondly, yields are low relative to history, so we viewed the risk-reward situation as unfavorable. You know, Bill, looking at this report, these projections as a whole seem pretty modest, which I guess would be in line with a slowing economy. But you do identify risks to your base case, which might lead to something more dramatic, and one of them is recession. What's the risk that the Fed left rates too high for too long and didn't act quickly enough to stimulate? Well, the risks are considerable. Uh, not only was the central bank tightening a risk, slow growth is as well. Gary Thayer, the former chief economist at A.G. Edwards, used to say that a slow economy is like riding a bike slowly. It just doesn't take much for the bike to tumble. Let me come back to economic indicators. What are some of the economic data points you're, you're, you're currently paying a lot of attention to? There are a number, uh, but one of my favorite comes from the Chicago Federal Reserve. It's called the National Activity Index. It's broad-based and gives a good read on the overall economy. Another is the combined recession indicator charts from the New York Federal Reserve and the Atlanta Federal Reserve. 
Uh, we have uh, already gotten a signal from the former, but we don't call a recession until we get confirmation from the latter. Another risk you identify, a secondary risk, is the election, which obviously adds uncertainty. And we acknowledge that the market dislikes uncertainty. You also identify melt-up in the market as a risk to your projections, although as a stock investor, th this doesn't seem horrible. What might cause a melt-up, and, and why might that be worrisome? Well, let's start with the first. The election's a worry because there are potential outcomes that are far outside the norm. The odds of widespread foreign interference and even a hung electoral college are possible. We covered this in more detail in the geopolitical outlook, which we'll discuss next week. But the key takeaway is that we could get results that are far outside the historical norms that would be hard for the financial markets to digest. A melt-up, on the other hand, is a bit like a bender, and the bender itself is fun. But the hangover is hard. In other words, risk assets rising to extreme levels can make the decline seem worse because many participants come in late, which is, in fact, the cause of the melt-up. You referred to this earlier, the length of this economic expansion. Many commentators do uh, seem to worry a lot about this. Is the record length alone long enough to spark concerns? Uh, in a sense, no. Expansions are not living things. They don't have a life expectancy. However, there is one area of concern. Hyman Minsky argued that the longer a business cycle extends, the more that lenders and borrowers take risks. In other words, borrowers and lenders feel increasingly comfortable with extending risk, increasing the vulnerability of the financial system. Another way of thinking about it is that the longer the cycle, the greater the odds that the recession will originate from the financial system and not from overall economic conditions. Is this an ideal time for investors to seriously take a look at their risk tolerance? We feel it's always a good time for investors to do a check on their risk tolerance. And to a great extent, this is why investors employ a financial advisor. But now is a really good time because a neglected portfolio that has not been rebalanced in recent years may be much more overweighted to equities than an investor is actually comfortable with. You must see this a lot. Are investors prone to mistakes when they examine how well they tolerate risk? One of the most difficult issues for investors is that a true reading of one's financial risk tolerance is merely academic until something happens. It's a little bit like uh, the old adage that everybody has a plan until they get punched. Maintaining a focus on goals is usually a good method of avoiding mistakes. Well, a forecast wouldn't be complete without a number. In this case, 3375.76. That's your projection for the S&P 500 this year. How did you calculate this? Uh, I'm assuming that in the absence of a recession, S&P total company earnings will usually come in about 6% of GDP. Using the GDP forecast from the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Survey of Economists for 2020 gives me a total earnings number. Then I use the current divisor to calculate an earnings per share number. And then I have a separate model that forecasts the price earnings multiple that uses Fed funds, the misery index, and the fiscal deficit to calculate a multiple. Taking the multiple times the earnings per share number generates the index forecast. The only real unknown is the divisor, which includes issuance, buybacks, mergers, and index component changes. This isn't really a forecastable number. 
But in recent years, due to buybacks, the divisor has been falling, which has boosted the per share number. If that trend continues, my forecast is probably conservative. Hmm. We're well into the new year now. It's been a while since your original report was published. Anything so far surprise you or change the way you you look at things? Uh, the economy is doing about what I thought it would do. Um, what has caught my attention is, has been the performance of risk assets. Uh, the equity market has done exceptionally well and has uh, got me watching closely to see if that melt-up scenario is, is, is going to be more likely. Uh, thus far, what we have seen is that the rally in stocks has been primarily driven by institutional buyers and not retail buyers. Uh, retail buyers have been shunning stocks and buying corporate bonds, uh, and their cash accumulation levels are similar to where we were at the peak of the crisis in 2008. However, uh, if that retail component decides that the fear of missing out has, has become too tempting and they come into the market, then the melt-up will be much more likely. So far, we haven't seen that. We may never see that, but, but that's what we're paying attention to. Thank you, Bill. This has been the Confluence of Ideas featuring Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady. The current perspectives report we mentioned at the beginning of our discussion is recommended for listeners who would like to dig down into the economic data and reasoning behind the firm's 2020 projections. Our website is confluenceinvestment.com. You can also find links there to the firm's daily comment, weekly geopolitical report, and other research articles. It's an easy step to subscribe by email to any of these reports. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. We want to state that opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. You can also find us on Twitter at ConfluenceIM. Our engineer for these podcasts is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Andler. 